The striking feature in Bilaam's tale is not that his donkey speaks. No prophet accustomed to miracles would be shocked by such a phenomenon. What is indeed amazing is that a prophet of God cannot see an ethereal angel standing right in front of his face, an angel so spiritually manifest that even his donkey notices him. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 48, Rembrandt, Bilam, and Us. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In the 1620s, a 19-year-old artist by the name of Rembrandt von Rijn journeyed from his hometown of Leiden to Amsterdam, where he apprenticed himself to Peter Lastman, the premier Dutch painter of his time. Lastman was known as a history painter, which meant that he painted primarily biblical scenes and Rembrandt aspired to follow in Lastman's footsteps. Lastman took on Rembrandt for six months and surely had no idea that he would one day be entirely eclipsed by his students. It was immediately following this apprenticeship that Rembrandt painted a scene from the Book of Numbers, providing us with his version of the donkey of Bilam. The painting, rightly understood, is not only about an unusually eloquent animal, but also about us and our encounter with sanctity in this world. Balak, king of Moab, wary at Israel's approach, seeks to hire Bilam, a Gentile prophet who has a mysterious connection to the God of Israel, asking Bilam to curse Israel and ignite the Almighty's anger against Israel. Numbers 22.6 Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse this people, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall prevail that we may smite them, and that I may drive them out of the land. Originally, the Almighty bans Bilaam from journeying with the Moabites to curse Israel, but then God allows him to go on the condition that he only utters the words that the Almighty tells him to pronounce. I cite some sections from verses 22 through 29. Now he was riding upon his donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. And Bilaam smote the donkey to turn it into the way. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and it said unto Bilaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Bilaam said unto the donkey, Because thou hast mocked me, I would there were a sword in my hand, for I would have killed thee. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Bilaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell on his face. It is the scene that Rembrandt gives us. After this encounter, Bilaam is ordered again to only say what the Almighty places in his mouth. Ultimately, Bilaam joins Balak and bestows blessings rather than curses upon Israel. And then Bilaam advises Moab that in order to ignite the Almighty's anger, the pagan women of Moab and Midian should entice Israel to engage in hedonistic, idolatrous acts. This indeed occurs, as even a leader of the tribe of Simeon, Zimri, embraces temptation and a plague descends upon Israel. And only when Pinachas, Phineas, grandson of Aaron, publicly punishes Zimri, does the plague cease. What is the larger lesson of this story? There is much to say, but one insight can be derived from Rembrandt's depiction. Rembrandt's teacher Peter Lassman has also given us just this scene. And Rembrandt did not seek to copy others. If he was creating a version of the very same story that his teacher had painted, it was because Rembrandt had thought that he could offer something better, more insightful, more profound. When we compare the two paintings, though one is arranged vertically and the other horizontally, they seem largely similar. But it is in the contrast between the two that a profound insight by Rembrandt can be discovered. One noted by Simon Schama in his biography of Rembrandt, 
which is titled Rembrandt's Eyes. Here, appropriately, it is the eyes of Bilam that allow us to see the profound difference between the two paintings. Lastman's depiction of Bilam shows him in shock as he is addressed by an animal. His eyes bug out cartoonishly. He is utterly surprised at what has occurred. He is shocked, as well we might be. The donkey is talking. Yet Rembrandt, certainly familiar with his teacher's painting, has done just the opposite. If you look carefully at the face of Rembrandt's Bilam, you see that the artist gives us darkened crevices where eyes ought to appear on the prophet's face. This is noteworthy. As Simon Shama has noted, Rembrandt had the ability to create exquisite eyes. There is a reason when he does not produce them. Rembrandt here is deliberately differentiating his own work from that of Lastman. The veil of darkness that appears over Bilam's vision reveals that Rembrandt is emphasizing not Bilam's surprise at the donkey's verbal ability, but rather the prophet's inability to see the angel. As Shama puts it, Rembrandt is giving us, quote, the moment before God opens those eyes to the angel and the light of truth, end quote. Bilam's eyes are shadowy crevices because at this moment he is blind. He cannot see what his donkey can see right in front of his face. As I argued in my series on Rembrandt and the Torah that I was privileged to write for Mosaic, what we see here is that with an incredible gift for biblical commentary, approaching the tale of Bilam and the donkey with exegetical genius, Rembrandt sees that this story is about sight, that a tale most known for a talking animal is not really about speech at all. The striking feature in Bilam's tale is not that his donkey speaks. No prophet accustomed to miracles would be shocked by such a phenomenon. And the text tells us that Bilam responds naturally to his steed without any sign of surprise. What is indeed amazing is that a prophet of God cannot see an ethereal angel standing right in front of his face, an angel so spiritually manifest that even his donkey notices him. The greatest wonder, in other words, is that a man known as a seer cannot see, that a man of such intimacy with the Almighty is utterly unaware of a spiritual being that stands before him. And Balaam himself concedes that this is a terrible failing on his part. Verse 32. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine donkey these three times? Behold, I am come forth for an adversary, because thy way is contrary unto me. And the donkey saw me, and turned aside before me these three times. Unless it had turned aside from me, surely now I had even slain thee, and saved it alive. And Bilaam said unto the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displeased thee, I will get me back. So Bilaam has indeed sinned, and his sin is linked to his failure to take note of God's supernatural servant. His inability to see the angel is linked to something larger for which he apologizes. This seems to indicate that had he really been looking, then Bilaam, a mysterious man who boasted a unique relationship with God, should have been able to notice what even his animal could see. Perhaps, perhaps the fact that Bilaam ignored the angel was because his thoughts were elsewhere. Perhaps he was so eager to engage in the lucrative act of cursing Israel on behalf of Balak that he could not see the supernatural that was right in front of his face, and he needed the Almighty to open his own eyes. This is Rembrandt's insight about sight. The shocking fact of the story is not that the donkey speaks, but that the seer does not see. Rembrandt's insight allows us to better understand what is one of the most perplexing parts of this tale. When the king of Moab seeks to hire the prophet to curse Israel, God at first enjoins Balaam from proceeding in verse 12. 
Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. Bilam obediently informs the Moabites in verse 18 that if Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do anything small or great. Suddenly, God seems to explicitly permit Bilam to accept the employment. But then God appears to grow angry with Bilam when he does exactly that. Verse 20, And God came unto Bilam at night and said unto him, If the men are come to call thee, rise up, go with them. But only the word which I speak unto thee, that shalt thou do. And Bilam rose up in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. And God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord placed himself in the way for an adversary against him. These verses appear to directly contradict each other. If Bilam was expressly allowed to journey, why is the Almighty upset that he went? Rembrandt's painting, perhaps, allows us to intuit the answer. Bilam is indeed permitted to proceed, but his sin, perhaps, is internal. He is excited to journey because he is untroubled by the notion that now he has been allowed to serve as Balak's employee. He has ceased to be focused on the fact that Israel is beloved of God and is willing to become a spiritual assassin for hire. It is not merely traveling with the Moabites that is the sin. It is being so hell-bent on cursing God's beloved Israel for pecuniary gain that is the source of God's anger. Indeed, Deuteronomy later stresses that Bilam was hoping for the opportunity to curse Israel, that the blessings he would later bestow did not match his internal intent. Thus we are later told, But the Lord thy God would not hearken to Bilam, but the Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing unto thee, because the Lord thy God loved thee. How are we able to intuit the prophet's interest in profit? How can we know that he proceeds utterly untroubled by the fact that he has been hired to curse the people that God has already blessed. We can learn it from the fact that the prophet plunges pell-mell ahead, failing to take notice of what even an animal is aware, that an angel of God stands right in front of him. Thus, as I argued in Mosaic, reading the text and seeing the story through Rembrandt's eyes allows us to understand that in 1626, he may not yet have become famous as an artist, but nevertheless, the careful reader of the Torah has already emerged as Rembrandt allows us to look at the Hebrew Bible, if you will, with fresh eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, with this explanation in mind, let us ask ourselves, understood this way, is this only a tale about Bilaam, or does it perhaps bear extraordinary relevance to us? We may not have experienced a talking donkey or the explicit appearance of an angel, but is it possible that we too may have missed moments in our lives of opportunities for insight, for spiritual encounter? I'm grateful to my wife, who once in a speech connected Bilam's confession, I have sinned, for I did not see you standing before me, to a book that we both love, a book I recently discussed, Norton Juster's The Phantom Tollbooth. In one scene in The Phantom Tollbooth, the book's hero, Milo, is taken by a boy named Alec to a land where there are no buildings or gardens, but everyone who lives in this land walks with his or her head facing the ground and acts as if the buildings were there entering apparently invisible edifices and exiting them as if they exist. Milo was told by Alec that this land is called reality. And Alec further explains what happened here. Quote, Many years ago on this very spot, there was a beautiful city of fine houses and inviting spaces, and no one who lived here was ever in a hurry. The streets were full of wonderful things to see, and the people would often stop to look at them. Didn't they have any place to go, asked Milo? To be sure, continued Alec. But as you know, the most important reason for going from one place to another is to see what's in between. And they took great pleasure in doing just that. Then one day someone discovered that if you walked as fast as possible, 
and looked at nothing but your shoes, you would arrive at your destination much more quickly. Soon everyone was doing it. They all rushed down the avenues and hurried along the boulevards, seeing nothing of the wonders and beauties of their city as they went. Milo remembered the many times he'd done the very same thing. And, as hard as he tried, there were even things on his own street that he couldn't remember. No one paid any attention to how things looked, and as they moved faster and faster, everything grew uglier and dirtier. And as everything grew uglier and dirtier, they moved faster and faster. And at last, a very strange thing began to happen. Because nobody cared, the city slowly began to disappear. Day by day, the buildings grew fainter and fainter, and the streets faded away until at last, it was entirely invisible. There was nothing to see at all. Hasn't anyone told them, asked Milo? It doesn't do any good, Alec replied, for they can never see what they're in too much of a hurry to look for, end quote. I have been to the museum in Paris, where Rembrandt's Billam hangs, and looking upon it, I was struck by how different the painting that he created early in life seemed from his later masterpieces. Indeed, had I not known about it, I could have walked right past it and ignored it entirely, never knowing that it was a Rembrandt. But studying this work of art, I understood that Rembrandt is telling us what truly to look for in life. We may not be blessed with the artistic eyes of Rembrandt, but we have been given the gift of feeling God's presence, of sensing sanctity in this world. We may not be prophets, but we are called to look for what truly matters, to seek moments of holiness. The painting reminds us to look carefully throughout our lives for the spiritual opportunities in the work of art that is known as reality for sources of inspiration made manifest in a masterpiece of the divine, of the almighty artist who matters most. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.